Revelation chapter 12. We, last week we closed out the second half, or I'm sorry, the first half. Oh my goodness, you are in for a treat today. We finished the first half of Revelation, uh, and along with that, the second cycle of judgment. So we've studied the, the seals, and we've studied the trumpets, and we're starting into the second half of the book of Revelation now. And with it, there's going to be another series of seven. This one is not as clearly identified uh, as the ones that we're familiar with, the, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. But if you go into the structure in the, of the letter, you'll be able to see that these, the opening of the temple at chapter 11, verse 19, gives way to a great sign that's going to be replaced with a great sign later. But between that, you see... Um, a number of times where John says, I saw, or I looked, and behold, he, he's calling out things he saw. And so they, they, these don't have a name. This series of seven don't have a name uh, like the seals and the trumpets do. And so as commentators and theologians do, they've come up with different ways to refer to it. Some have called it the seven signs. Some have called it the seven histories. So, uh, so, well, there's all kinds of them. I want to call it, the, the, the thing I have been calling it in my mind are the th seven things John saw that reveals there's a spiritual war or cosmic conflict raging in the world we live. But that doesn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> and so you can see why, why people have called it... Seven things John saw. Let's just, let's just go with that, right? So, but in the study of this, what we're going to deal with, and it's actually pretty interesting, uh, we, we don't plan, well, I mean, we make plans, but our services, like the songs, the, the passages are given to Tristan to prepare songs for, uh, and then the, the assignments for prayer and those readings, uh, they're not usually connected with the, the sermon passage, but you'll see today that there's a way in which it seems like the Lord is really looking to get our attention about the reality of the spiritual war, the cosmic conflict that rages around us. Uh, the passage that Ricky read and prayed through, uh, I was going to use it, and then I decided not to, but then I, I went up and I said, no, we're going we're gonna to go back and look at that again, uh, because it's, it, it really is partly some of what gave me the language for the main point that you're going to see. But we're going to study today things that, like the trumpets and, and like the seals, we're going to study things today that have, many of you have, have grown up thinking, well, these are all future events, and you're, and you're looking out into the future, and you're thinking at some time in the future, maybe the distant future, or it could happen any moment, that you've studied these things or been taught these things, that they're something that's going to happen. But I think these seven things that John saw that reveals there's a spiritual war or cosmic conflict raging around us, I think these things, like the seals and the trumpets, have happened are happening and will continue to happen until Christ returns. And some of the things are related to historical events, like what we'll read today, the fall of Satan. We're going to read about something that happened in history. It's already occurred. But the spiritual war that rages continues on. And it will continue on until the day he returns. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 through 17. We're going to read the whole chapter, and we'll pray, and we'll dig in, and, and, and I hope you'll see what I'm talking about now. Let's, let's read it. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, in, ag in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his heads, on his he seven on his heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, and so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule the nations with the rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she is a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the red dragon, and the, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were, down, or were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. 
For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. The the images and the symbols that escape us, we know that you have purpose and meaning in them. So I I would just pray that you would reveal those things to us today, that as we study, as we look, that your spirit would move and work. But we wouldn't miss what's main and plain in pursuit of understanding some symbol. That you are victorious and your enemy is defeated. That you are mighty and mightier than any enemy could ever stand. So so I pray today, Father, that we would take great courage, take great encouragement, and, and, and be bold in our stance in this world, even as a war rages, even as conflict continues. I pray, Father, that you would enable us, your people, to live and, and proclaim the truth that you have given us to proclaim. We would be a people who love you and the life you have for us more than anything this world, these trifling little treasures that this world could offer. I pray, Father, that you would move on us, your people. And those that aren't yours, that may be sitting here listening, or those that might listen to this recording later, I pray that you would help them to see the hopelessness That if if the devil can't overcome you, how in the world could they? Move, I pray today, Father, by the power of your spirit. Exalt your son among us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are at war. We are. We, we, We have been at war longer than most of us even realize. We've been at war longer than any of us have actually been alive. We don't always live like it. In fact, I'd suggest that there are plenty of ways that the American church has been lulled into a false sense of peace and security and comfort that we forget all about the war that rages around us all the time. It's not a war that's fought over borders and lands like most of the wars we consider. It's, it's not a war that's fought with war machines like tanks and fighter jets and battleships. It's not a war that weapons are guns and grenades, but it is a war. And people are killed in it all the time. It is a war that's being fought in this very moment. In fact, at every moment, in every season of our lives, it is a war that is being fought all around us. Our enemy is not like the, the, the Saddam Husseins or the Adolf Hitlers of the world. Our enemy is not progressive Democrats or extreme right-wing Republicans, depending on whether you listen to CNN or Fox. Our, our enemy is not the LGBTQ activists or socialism or communism. It isn't critical theory or any of those theories. The threat we face is much more sinister, much more powerful, it's more powerful than any secret cabal. It was actually interesting. I was studying Revel- I've been studying Revelation now for about three years, two and a half, three years. 
and, and I was sent a video of the secret powers that are running the world, this cabal of like four families, four names, right? Oh, man, you need to know about this. I don't, I don't need to know about it because they're not really the ones in control. The enemy that we face, though, the threat that's against us is even more dangerous than that. Sitting here, having just read this passage, I think you likely already know where I'm going. We've already sung some songs about it. But you know, I I did a little research this week, a little bit of Googling, a little internet surfing. I just typed a couple of different questions. One of them was, what's the greatest threat the church faces today? You know how many times Satan came up? None. None. Zero. Somehow we believe that he's no longer a threat to us or causes any danger to us. Here, there's also lots of things listed. I found a whole lot of things, and, and many of them by trusted sources, like places where we would go and say, yeah, man, I can, I can believe this. This is something i got to listen to close. Some suggested that we're our own greatest threat because we're apathetic or lazy in our walk with the Lord, because we're biblically illiterate, because, because the church in America has a low view of God, a lack of love for his word. And, and, and I, I agree, that's a problem. Those are real problems. Others mention things like progressive politics, false gospels, wokeness, critical race theory. Hey, even Christian nationalism made the list uh, of those top uh, of those top. Uh, responses. What struck me about that is that there's two sides, uh, two, two people standing on political, two different political ideological sides, and one saying wokeness is the problem, and the other saying Christian nationalism is the problem, when really they're missing the problem, because there's a more sinister, more powerful, greater threat behind those problems, those challenges, those things that we face. I, I do think that these things pose, pose a problem to us. I do think that there are challenges that, that we face in the world, that Christians face in, in the world today. But behind every one of them is an actual enemy. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. Our fight is against flesh and blood. Oh, wait a minute. That's not what he said. Why do we act like it? Our fight is not against flesh and blood. And yet, we continue to act like it. Again, in in, in Ephesians 2, Paul calls out the enemy that's behind these problems, these challenges, these perceived threats. The, The prince of the power of the air that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's not that they're not responsible before God for their sin and for their rebellion. But our enemy is at work in the sons of disobedience, creating real problems for God's people. It's been said by people who are much smarter than me. I mean, that doesn't set the bar very high, so... So I get, but, but they are way smarter than me. It's been said by, by, by people way smarter than me that, that really the mistake, that the, there's two mistakes that we, we make as the American church as it comes to things of spiritual warfare, things of Satan and demons. Is that one, one, one fault is we give them too much power, we give them too much weight, we focus on them too greatly. And, and there's probably parts of the church that do that. There's probably parts of the American church that are, are guilty of that, the hyper-spiritual, the hyper-Pentecostal. But I think the breadth of the, the broader American church probably isn't guilty of that one. That, you might find that in other places, but not in America. I think we are much more likely to ignore him altogether. And I think that's evident when you go searching for what the greatest threat in the church today is, and not once is Satan or demons, spiritual warfare mentioned. I think it's evident we have ignored the reality in which we live 
that there's a spiritual war, a cosmic conflict that's raging. Well, Revelation 12 guards us from both of these because it unveils that cosmic conflict. It unveils that war that's raging. It teaches us this point. Satan has been defeated. But in vengeful rage, he continues to attack God's people who conquer not by sword or by might, but by faith, truth, and love of Christ. Satan has been defeated, but in vengeful rage, he continues to attack God's people who conquer not by sword nor by might, but by faith, truth, and love of Christ. And why does this matter? Why do we need, why do we need to recognize this? Before we go any further, let me just, let me just answer that question. We don't want to show up to a gunfight with a knife. Think about it. If we think that our enemy is flesh and blood, then we are going to fight with flesh and blood strategies. We're going to show up to a gunfight with something that is absolutely inconsequential. And have we not done that? Is the church known for its proclamation of the gospel or its political positions in the world? Let me say that differently. It's political position in America. What do, you think, what do you think the broader American public thinks of the church as far as our proclamation of the gospel? They hear our law, our desire for law, our political posturing. I, I think we have a responsibility there. I'm not trying to ask you to stop participating. We have a moral responsibility for the love of our brothers and sisters in Christ, for the love of a lost people. We have a responsibility. But are we more likely to stump for a candidate in an election year or proclaim Christ crucified and resurrected? You see, if our enemy is progressive politics or wokeness or CRT or even trying to pre pre prevent Christian apathy, if that's the enemy and not the symptom that demonstrates we have a great enemy, a powerful enemy, we're going to deal with the symptoms all day long and never address, address the real problem. We're going to show up to a gunfight with a dull knife. Satan has been defeated, but in vengeful rage, he continues to attack God's people who conquer not by sword nor by might, but by faith, truth, and love of Christ. Revelation 12 helps us to see how to address these issues. In doing that, we need to, we, we've got some difficult things to deal with first. We've got some, some images and some symbols that got to be called out and defined. We, we have the combatants in cosmic conflict, right? So, so the passage opens, a great sign appeared in heaven, and there's a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head are crown and 12 stars. And, and that imagery seems to allude to um, Joseph's dream where he's going to be this son that's born to someone who, who, who is going to um, lead, basically. It seems to allude to those images. But who's this woman? Is it his mother? Probably not. Is it, is it, some people, like the Roman Catholic Church, would immediately point to Mary, and they'd say, this is talking about Mary, and, and I get why they're saying that, because clearly the child she's going to give birth to is Jesus. We're going to see that in just a minute. Is it Mary? Maybe in type, but not in fulfillment. Is it Eve? I mean, Eve was promised a son who would be the head crusher of the serpent. The serpent would strike his heel and the son would crush the head of the serpent. It must be Eve. Maybe. But I think more likely, I think the answer is already up there for you. I think this is more likely referring that this woman is God's covenant people, the messianic community. I like Robert Mounts, the way he identifies this in his commentary. He calls it the ideal Israel. There's a way in which Israel, the nation, and, and the old covenant people were not all true Israel. They didn't all really belong to God as a covenant or messianic community. There's a line, though, that runs through them 
that God has always had his remnant among them that runs past the, the establishment of the Old Covenant. And if you, if you have questions about these covenants, I'd encourage you to go back to the, the previous parts of this series, right? Like we went through these covenants and we saw, we saw how starting all the way back at Adam, God had made promises for a promised son. And then through his covenants, he progressively moves to the place where he is, comes to the new covenant, the actual covenant of grace. And we see those covenants being fulfilled so that we actually get to the new covenant. But he has had a covenant people all this time who were not saved because they made sacrifices, who were not saved because they kept laws, who were not saved because they did something. They were saved and they were God's people because Christ's work was retroactively applied to them. They were the new covenant anticipating and looking, the new covenant people anticipating and looking forward in faith to God establishing his new covenant work through Christ, looking for the fulfillment of the promised son, the promised savior, the, the king who would rule eternally. The prophet that would come and speak truth that, that Moses talks about in Deuteronomy. The new Adam that would live sinlessly, never rejecting God's but then we see that this woman, as we, as we walk through the passage, we see that this woman doesn't just, she doesn't quit existing after, after she has this birth. She continues to be taken care of for a period of 1260 days. I think that this woman is God's messianic community through whom he brought us our Savior. She, she's God's people from all of time. And the point of the childbirth and the pains of childbirth is the anticipation and the suffering in faith. Go, go read Hebrews 11, the hall of faith and the sacrifices that were, were, were expressed by people, not sacrifices and animal sacrifices, but the faith in God and in his promises that led these people to live lives that they loved their lives not unto death. Hebrews 11 is full of those people. It's faithful people who'd always been looking forward to the, these new covenant people that span the time before Christ and extend after Christ. And the people who are being preserved and protected by God. I think it's the same people who are sealed when we, in, in Revelation chapter 7 when we read about the sealing of the saints, the 144,000 and the multitude that are the same people. It talks about them being the, the woman being protected for 1260 days. Well, that time frame is, is the same as 42 months, which is also called out here in time and times and half a time, which is basically a time and times, that's two times. So time and two times, that's three years, and half a time is half a year, that's three and a half years. So 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, it's all the same length of time, and it's, this, it's the same time frame that's a, applied to the, the pro proclamation or the, the, the proclaiming of the two witnesses that they're going to proclaim for 42 months. And some, again, some of us, many of us, probably most of the people sitting in the room grew up hearing that that's some future literal time, and it's going to be half of, the, half of this great tribulation that's coming. I would suggest that that language and that time frame harkens back to Old Testament illusions of, of 42 months being symbolic, uh, a symbolic reference to Israel's wandering in the wilderness. They had 42 encampments. You can go read, read them out and see them in uh, Numbers. You, you can see the three and a half years as a, a possible reference to Jesus' life on the earth and ministry on the earth, his public ministry. But each of these draw on language that is both referenced in the life of Christ but also in the Old Testament prophets. And so I think that probably what this is referring to is not some future time, three and a half years of a great tribulation that, that they would say, that the futurists would suggest last seven years. I would suggest that that 1260 days, that 42 months, that time and times and half a time is really a symbolic reference to the time of testing the time of tribulation and the time of preservation, which is the time from Jesus' resurrection to his return. When the church, 
generation after generation, when the new covenant people reside on this earth, experiencing the attacks of the devil, being, experiencing the tribulation, but being preserved by God's power. So I would suggest that this woman is God's covenant people, the Messianic community, that we have been protected and preserved even though we've been in danger. So the next thing we have to, to, to discuss, and I've already alluded to this, the male child. What's well, easy to see, and I, think, I don't think anybody really disagrees about this, that the male child is Jesus. He is the promised son. He was, he was prefigured by uh, Seth, born to Eve. In fact, Eve thinks, if you go back and read Genesis chapter 5, where, where they're about to have this, this third child after their, one of theirs, Cain kills Abel. Now they're about to have this child, and, and Eve is anticipating the fulfillment of God's promise that the head crusher's coming. Well, when you read through Genesis 5, you find out that's not true because Seth dies. <laughs> in fact, everybody in that lineage dies. But that line continues all the way to the point that we come to Noah. And Noah and his family are, are, are preserved through the flood. And the flood gives way to, to well, I, I love what was pointed out earlier in our series when we walked through these covenants and, and when Noah w walked off the ark, sin walked off with him. So sin continued in the, in the world. So it wasn't Noah. He wasn't the promised one. Abraham's begging for a child and God promises him a son. Isaac's not the one, although he was a son of promise. You can follow that all the way through to the point where David is promised a son who's going to sit on his throne forever, who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And it's easy to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those types and shadows that we're building and preparing us to meet our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But immediately, he snatched up to God and, and, and his throne. And, and that is probably the briefest summary of the work of the gospel that Jesus has done that I know of in the Bible. He's born and he's snatched up to God and his throne. It assumes, at least there, it assumes everything in the middle. We're going to read about in the verses that follow, you're going to, you're going to hear again about the, 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 the blood of the lamb and the sacrifice that he made, right? The, the truth of their testimony based on his lives, right? We're going to see that. But here in this moment, there's this, there's this snatching up immediately. And it's from this point that we begin to see the dragon change his focus of attack. So think about this. Interesting note. It's just something I, I noticed. I, I didn't see a lot of people write on it. It, it, it kind of stood out to me. I'm surprised by it. So there's this picture in 12, 1 through 6. There's this vision, this sign that appears that John sees, and it is a woman who's about to give birth. And rather than a doctor about to catch that baby is a dragon hanging out waiting to devour the baby the moment it's born. Think of the horrific imagery, right? Like this is... This, it, it, if we could rate this and, and draw it out for, for real, this would be like rated R imagery, so you have, you have to go home and talk with your kids. But, but realistically, this is murderous intent to devour a baby the moment after its birth. This is horrific. But he can't get the son because the son is born and snatched up to the throne, right? So Jesus lives his life. He he lives sinlessly. He faces off with the serpent, like in the, in the desert, in the wilderness. He faces off with him and preaches truth to him. And the serpent stirs up the crowd behind the, behind the Jews and the Romans was the serpent stirring up the crowds to, to crucify this son. Even before he's born, he's stirring up Herod who hears about the, the, the birth of this baby that's going to be born. And he sends the wise man, hey, go, go find out where he's at. And then he commands babies to be murdered. He has been trying to destroy the son since the promise was made all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Her offspring is going to crush your head. Think about it. The son... 
Jesus, the male child born of the covenant people, for the covenant people, to lead and be the head of the covenant people, this son is the whole purpose that the devil is doing what he's doing. But he can't get the son. So what does he do? So this should humble us just a little bit, church. We are an afterthought to the devil. He didn't come for you. But because he couldn't get the one he came for, he came for you. Right? Don't dismiss the, 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 the intensity or the seriousness of that. But his desire was to do everything he could to destroy the son. So we have the woman, that's the covenant people of God, the messianic community from all times. We have the male child, which is Jesus, and we have the dragon. And again, I've alluded to this already, but, but he is identified pretty clearly. I don't think I have to define this, but, but we're going to walk through it. He's called the ancient serpent. Genesis 3 is the serpent in the garden, right? Like that's what it's pointing to. Specifically, 3.15, where, where God condemns him and curses him. God promises to send that head crusher, but, but he's the serpent tempting Eve. Hey, look at this fruit. Boy, it's juicy. Look at this fruit. If you eat of it, you'd be like, God, why didn't God want you? Did God really say? Spreading his filth. Incidentally, he's behind all the instances of male children being killed in order to kill the son of promise. Again, we talked about Herod. I mentioned Herod, but that's not the first time that happened. What did Pharaoh do when he found out? Hey, we gotta, what are we going to do? We're going to kill sons. You think, you think that's just Pharaoh? You think there's just a physical reality to that? He is the ancient serpent who's been at work seeking to devour and destroy and remove the threat that's going to crush his head. He is the devil, it says, which is the language. He's the slanderer. He's the, he's the one who, who speaks lies about us and to us. He's, the, he's Satan, the adversary, which is what that word means. The adversary, the one who stands against He's the deceiver of the whole world, the father of lies. He started with lies. He's always been telling lies. And he's going to continue to tell lies. He's going to create doubt and cause question. Did God really say? So this morning in our equip class, we're talking about the church gathered and, and a big conversation that happens around the church gathering. Is it really necessary the church get together? Is it really necessary for the church to show up on Sunday morning? Is it real? I could sit at home in my, my PJs watching online. I got podcasts out the wazoo. I don't need that. I mean, these people, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Slanderer. Invading your mind. Lying. Causing doubt. Calling into question. He's the deceiver of the whole world. You think you're immune? The whole world. Man, we're foolish to ignore the fact that there's someone always whispering lies into our ear. Now, your heart's deceptively wicked. Absolutely. The Bible tells us that's clear. But to ignore the reality of Satan's Work in this world attacking God's people is foolish. He is the deceiver of the whole world. He may not own us and he may not control us and he may not be able to, to, to remove us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's what Romans tells us, Romans 8 tells us. But you think he can't be an antagonist to you whispering those lies all the time? He is the accuser. His desire is to defame and, and to point out what's wrong with us. And, and this might be the only true thing he's ever said. Hey, they're sinners. <laughs> yep, <laughs> it's absolutely true. 
we are. <laughs> they don't deserve you, God. They, they, they look at what they've done. Has he whispered those lies in your ear? When, the, when those sinful thoughts creep in, and what's, what, what is it that we do? When, oh man, you don't deserve grace. Who are you? Hey, you, you? You can't do that stuff. You're not worthy. God doesn't love you. And then that sinful passion of the flesh that just keeps waging war against our soul adds what we think is evidence to the reality of its claim. Think you're immune? You're not immune. Your enemy is powerful. He knows his business. He's good at his work. He is the accuser. And he will bring his accusations. But he is a defeated foe. Don't miss this. <laughs> he is thrown down. His place is no longer in heaven. Yeah, he roams on the earth like a lion seeking to de devour. <laughs> But he has no place. His accusations can't raise to the heavens anymore. Right? Like there's a picture of him in the Old Testament in heaven, in Job and in Zechariah. There's two places where, where we see him showing up to bring his accusations to the throne. God says to, to, to him in the, in the gathering of the angels, he says to, to, to the devil, he says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? And, and immediately this is, is, he is like, yeah, man, I thought about him. The only reason he worships you and immediately moves into accusation. The only reason he worships you is because you've given him special treatment. And God's like, eh, you think so? No, he doesn't exactly say it like that. I know, I'm kind of ad-libbing a little bit. But effectively, the rest of Job is saying, God's saying to the serpent, prove it. I'll, I'll let you go this far. And Job will not curse God. He asks a lot of questions and he ends up repenting in the end. But he always remains faithful to the fact that God is God. He is a defeated foe. He has been thrown down. His accusations can no longer, they, they can no longer rise to God. And, and, and other combatants that I don't even think I have to call this out, Michael and his angels... Right, like they're the angels. It's not hard to see that there's this, there, there's a way in which there's fallen angels and there's there's godly angels, those who didn't follow after the devil in his rebellion, and and they are fighting. And there's a heavenly war raging, and Michael and his angels win, and the foe is defeated, and and Satan is thrown down, and heaven celebrates. And we don't think about this often, right? Because we imagine heaven as the new heavens and the new earth. We, we look at them as if they've already, all the work's been accomplished. But there was a time when conflict existed even in heaven. Because the accuser was there. The, the rebel, the, the devil, the adversary was there bringing accusation against God and his people and the work that God was doing. And Michael and his angels fight him and throw him down to the earth. When did this happen? I think the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the time at which this occurred. I think this is a historical moment that's already happened, that they have won. And, the, and he is a defeated foe, but he is vengeful. And since he couldn't win in heaven, he is seeking to win on the earth and defame the work of God by attacking God's people, which I think are the woman and the rest of the woman's offspring, which I think is the New Testament church. Again, the, the, the overlapping of metaphors. I think that it gets all difficult and messy in our minds when we start trying to make all these things add up and equate, but I think that's the reality of apocalyptic literature is that these symbols, these metaphors, they start stacking up and laying on one another in such a way that it's difficult to discern. 
But he is after the rest of the woman's offspring. Listen, he is powerful and he is mighty and he should not be ignored, but he should not be given too much power. He is defeated. He is on his last leg. He knows his time is short, the text says. And so he does all he can. He does everything in his power, accusing and lying and, and, and adversarying, like creating conflict and controversy. He deceives us and he calls us to be focused on the wrong things. So the church gets focused on the wrong mission. So that we quit preaching the right gospel. So that we quit encouraging one another with the truth of God's word and his grace. Yeah, I'm not worthy and neither are you. But the truth is that there is no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. No accusation to be made. Why do we continue accusing then? Doing the work of the devil for him. He is conquered. And because he is conquered, he can continue to be conquered. Satan is conquered by us by faith in the atoning work of Christ. Look at it in verse 11. It's the center of this, this whole thing. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Over and over, we see it in this passage. It's, it's not our might. It's not our power. We didn't do this by our arm. We didn't do this by weapons of warfare like, like, like the world would seek to go to war. Satan is conquered by someone else on our behalf. God protects his people. God nourishes his people. It's our faith in him. Well, how in the world can he do that for a sinful people? Because Satan's right. We're sinners. He does it by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He provides for the forgiveness of the sins of his people. And in so doing, he is the just and the justifier. He remains righteous as he justifies us, as he calls us innocent. Apart from Christ, the one true thing the serpent can say is that we're sinners. But in Christ... The accusations will not stand. You're a sinner. Nope. In Christ, you're a saint. You're unworthy. No, in Christ, you've been made worthy. You're a worm in the dirt. No. The blood of Christ has made me a valuable treasure to my Father. You are undeserving. But in Christ, I have been washed clean. And he's made me deserving. You're distant. He doesn't think on you. He doesn't care about you. No. The Bible tells me I'm a citizen of the king. A son of the king. We don't get this because of what we've done. We get this because of faith in the one that's done it for us. We didn't do it ourselves. And, and this is why I called it out earlier. The, the idea, I wasn't going to bring this passage because I, I, I well, but it needs to be done. So, so I, I asked them to put the, the verses from Psalm 44. We're not going to read all of them again. But Psalm 44, where, where Ricky read and then prayed, I just want you to hear it again. Let me get there. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. They're not using the weapons of warfare, right? They're not doing it by their own power. But by your right hand and your arm, by your power, he's saying, and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. Our worthiness is not based on what we see in ourselves. Our worthiness, our, our value to God is what he's delighted in. Like that's a, the crazy thing. You're valuable to God because God values you. Not because you value yourself. For 
For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the, right, and, the, and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained, or ordained salvation for Jacob. That's Israel, right? Like ordained salvation for your people. Through, though we pushed down our foes, or through you we pushed down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us, for not in my bow do I trust, nor even my sword, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually and will give thanks to your name forever. We boast in God because the God's the one that did it. If less to ourselves, Satan would come against us and we'd have no defense. It starts by faith in the atoning work of Christ, conquering by his blood, not our own. Well, we've already modeled the second one that I think we see listed out in verse 11. They, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And, and I think you could probably work out there your, like, your personal testimony and how'd you get saved, you know, and oh, I, I was this horrible sinner and God showed up. And, and I, I think you could work that out, but what I think he's really referring to is the proclamation of truth. The word of their testimony is the truth of Christ's work. So when we see Satan approach uh, Jesus in the wilderness and he's out there after 40 days in the wilderness and he's hungry, what does Satan do? Shows up and begins to tempt him. And in every instance, how does Jesus respond? The truth of God's word. And we've already been doing it. Hey, you're a sinless, you, you're a worthless sinner. But the truth is, in Christ, I am a saved saint. You deserve to be condemned. But in Christ, there is no condemnation. It's the truth of his testimony. It's the truth of the work of Christ that dispels lies. We proclaim these truths to dispel his lies, to answer his accusations. That's why we need the word. That's why, that's why a, a church that's illiterate, a biblically illiterate, or a church that is, is unfamiliar with the word of God, they are at risk. That's why a church that's more influenced by the voices in the world than the voice of the Spirit through the Word of God has so many struggles because they're given to a bunch of lies and accusations rather than the truth that God gave us. We must proclaim the truth to dispel his lies and then we, when we do, we overcome him, we conquer him. And the last thing it shows us that conquers Satan is loving Christ more than life. I think it was D.A. Carson I heard kind of say it like this. But it was in my mind when, when he said it. But he said it in such a way that he kind of chuckled after. He's like, what do you do with a guy who says death is gain? Right? So Paul, writing in the book of Galatians, he's like, I, I, I want to I be with God in heaven, but it's purposeful for me to be here. De death to me is gain. What do you do with a guy like that? And D.A. Carson, I'm pretty sure it was D.A. Carson, kind of chuckles after, you know, and he, he almost laughs in his French uh, dialect. It's just, anyway, it was kind of funny, and I thought, yeah. What do you do with a guy who counts every advantage, every privilege he has, every, every position and, and uh, thing that the world would treasure, all of his accolades, all of his credentials, all of it is loss in contrast to gaining the greatest treasure in the world? the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What do you do when, when, when somebody loves Jesus more than they love anything else? The devil loses his power. Because we trust in his atoning work. In fact, let me just, let me just say this. You want to know how you'll always know that Jesus loves you? You want to know how to answer the doubt that's behind? Well, he doesn't love you. He died for you. The cross is the reminder every day he loves you. 
Because he loves you, you can love him more than anything else. He is the greatest treasure. As a result of that, we get to, lo- we get to live as if we have nothing to lose. Because the truth is there is nothing, neither life nor death, angels or demons, that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. See, it's not even your love first that matters most. It's his love for you, the love of Christ that gives you reason to love him so much. What do you do when life lived on this earth It's purposeful and necessary and right because God wills it. But we know that death is gain. Satan loses his power. Satan has been defeated, but in vengeful rage, he continues to attack God's people who conquer not by sword nor by might, but by faith, truth, and love of Christ. Brother, sister, Christian. I was actually teased about saying that. I guess I've been saying that a lot. Brother, sister, Christian. I I hope, I hope you'll recognize the intensity of the war that's raging, the seriousness of the war that's raging, and you will go to battle to conquer Satan, not by weapons of warfare that we would use in a physical fight. Don't show up to a gunfight with a knife but by a growing faith in the atoning work of Christ, by, the, by the, the, the believing in and proclamation of his truth, and by loving him over everything else, that you would, say, you, you would see Satan flee. If you don't know, nor have you ever trusted or followed Jesus, you're going to have trouble in this world, but it's not because you're in a spiritual battle. It's because you belong to the kingdom of darkness. So your hope is not go conquer the devil. Your hope is begin trusting in Christ. So repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus, the only solution, the only Savior, the one who has the might and has the power to destroy Satan. Listen to the truth of his word. Yes, you are a sinner who deserves condemnation But in Christ, you can find forgiveness of every ounce of your sin. And all that condemnation is washed away. Turn to him, believe in Christ, and see Satan's hold on you fall away. Let's pray.